As we look toward the end of 2020, it's very clear that two things have absolutely dominated the politics of this year, Donald Trump and the coronavirus. Fascinatingly, as we look ahead to 2021, we could be looking at a political environment that will actually be largely absent of both Donald Trump and the coronavirus, depending on how quickly the vaccine gets deployed and all of those factors. As we look toward the Joe Biden administration, right now people's reactions to it are something of a Rorschach test, with many progressives projecting all of their hopes and fears about the total rejection of everything Trump-related onto the blank canvas they imagine Joe Biden to be, and Republicans doing the same thing but in reverse, the reality is going to be a lot more complicated. We can already see some of the contours of the direction in which Biden is likely to go from some of the cabinet appointments that are out as of this recording. And there are also some structural factors that Biden is going to have to deal with, regardless of his own policy priorities. In the end, the 2021 political landscape has the possibility to be something that politics hasn't been in a long time. Kind of boring. And maybe that's a good thing. But then again, events do have this way of happening. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to a prognosticatory episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I'm not actually sure whether it should be prognosticative or prognosticatory, but we are going to endeavor to prognosticate. And so if anybody has any thoughts on what, in fact, the adjective form of prognosticate is, I know prognostication is the noun. I don't know what the adjective is. You can let us know that on Facebook. Speaking of which, uh, this podcast is associated with Regent University's Robertson School of Government, and so am I. I am Dr. Nolte an assistant professor of government at said university and said school. But once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast from your favorite podcast provider. If your podcast provider has a ratings option, please do that as it helps us raise the profile of this podcast, assuming you like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast, please don't give us a rating. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, and you can follow us through the Robertson School of Government's Facebook and Instagram pages where you can find this content and content from our other Regent University Robertson School of Government faculty. If you think I am too hard on Democrats, you can find people on our RSG feed who would probably agree with you. If you think I'm too hard on Republicans, you can find people on our RSG feed who would probably agree with you there as well. One of the wonderful things about academic freedom is that we all have intellectual diversity in the perspective of a shared Christian worldview, and so you can find a number of different perspectives there, so please do check us out. So, Thinking about the future, one of the things that we do at Blind Politics, and I said this in sort of our first intro episode, which you could find probably at the beginning of your podcast feed, bad audio quality and all, it's sort of a museum piece of where we've come from, but one of the things I said is that we're looking at past trends, 
pre and present realities to try to predict what might happen in the future. So past past history and present uh, present tr uh, realities to try to predict future trends. And so we just concluded a series looking at the 2020 election in detail because it's a big deal. There was a lot that happened. There was a lot to unpack. And the last of those episodes was somewhat of a prognostication attempt, but this is going to be a lot more narrowly focused on year one of, again, what at this time looks inevitably to be the Biden administration. Okay, it seems increasingly likely that that is the outcome. And by the time you hear this, uh, it may in fact have been confirmed, although I don't expect that confirmation until the Electoral College actually votes. Trump over the weekend, I'm recording this early in the first week of December, Trump over the weekend said that if in fact the Electoral College votes to certify Biden, he will accept that. That will not stop him from talking about voter fraud for the next four years. And so, you know, it is what it is. As we're recording this, there is actually, it looks like one congressional race that looks probably like it won't be decided before the first of the year at this point. That is New York's 22nd congressional race. Uh, and that is a whole crazy, crazy ball of wax. We may have one more 2020 episode coming up. I'm trying to get an expert on North Carolina politics to come and give us the lowdown on what happened there and what's likely to happen in the future in North Carolina, but we will have to see how that plays itself out. But for now, let's look at the politics of 2021. There are a couple of events early in 2021 that will determine some, but not all, of the contours of the politics of the first year of the Biden administration. These events in particular are the two runoff elections in Georgia for Senate. Uh, David Perdue against John Ossoff and Kelly Loeffler against Raphael Warnock. And those two runoff elections are happening very early in January. I want to say it's January 5th, but I could be wrong about that. By the time Joe Biden is inaugurated, we will know the winners of those two elections. Now, I would say there have been a couple of narratives about these elections that I want to question. And, and then I'll, I'll kind of give you my perception on that. And then we'll, we'll break down what the impact of it is going to be and what the future looks like for the president-elect in, in his first year. So one of the narratives is that these races are toss-up races. That in fact, Joe Biden won Georgia. This is an epical shift in the politics of Georgia. And in fact, this means that these races are toss-up at best. People have also said that Purdue and Leffler for the Republicans are sort of uh, weaker candidates and, you know, that there's this massive surge of Democratic voters in Atlanta who have come because Stacey Abrams motivated them. And that's what's driving the, the turnout and the shift toward Biden winning the state this year. There are a couple of problems with that. The first problem that I have with that is that the analysis that, in fact, Biden won more votes in urban Atlanta than Clinton did in 2016 is false. The reality is that just about everywhere in the country, Biden underperformed Hillary in urban areas. So it doesn't mean that, that African-American turnout wasn't higher. It means that Biden's numbers there were lower. Where Biden won, it was because suburban voters turned against Trump and toward him. So suburban voters that maybe held their noses and voted for Trump in 2016 could not do it again in 2020. That could be because they thought Trump was more odious. That could also be because they thought Joe Biden was more acceptable than Hillary Clinton. It's probably a combination of the two. But what you'll notice there also in Georgia is that there is a significant undervote 
of both Trump and Biden voters in the Senate races. So Purdue, Ossoff, Warnock, Leffler, all of those candidates and the other candidates that were running in the Leffler-Warnock special election because there were two other Democrats and one other Republican who were credibly running campaigns for that, uh, that seat, all got significantly lower votes than Trump and Biden. Okay, so assuming that turnout in a special election is going to in any way replicate turnout in the 2020 general election that we just had does not make sense. Special elections are all weird. They're all their own strange beast. But what we what we can say from 2020 is that in the 2020 general election, the notion that Stacey Abrams created this massive voter turnout machine that turned out African-Americans who were disappointed because they thought that Stacey Abrams had the election stolen from her. By the way, she lost by more votes than Trump did. So if you're frustrated with Trump carrying on you know, his, his claims about Georgia months, you know, weeks after the fact, Stacey Abrams has been portraying herself to be governor-elect for now two years, and she lost by way more votes than Trump. So if the elections were clean in 2020, they're probably also clean in 2018 because not a lot has changed and the same people are in charge of them. Anyway, moving on. I don't necessarily think that this whole Stacey Abrams is the future of the Democratic Party and the great progressive hope thing is really going to work for Democrats any better than Jamie Harrison did in South Carolina, Beto O'Rourke did in Texas, or Stacey Abrams did in Georgia and Andrew Gillum did in Florida in 2018. I'm just not buying that the way to win elections in these southern states is by running left-wing African-American candidates. That doesn't mean that I don't think an African-American candidate is the right person. But I think if you had an African-American candidate who could you know, win that turnout battle in you know, urban Georgia, but also who was somewhat more of a blue dog on policy issues, maybe a little bit more socially conservative, maybe a little bit more fiscally moderate, somebody in the mold of like a Sanford Bishop, who's a long time blue dogish African-American congressman from Georgia, more Sanford Bishops, less Stacey Abramses would probably actually win the Democrats elections in the South. But those aren't the types of candidates that they are running. Those aren't the types of candidates that they think are going to get them winning coalitions. And until they do that, they're going to motivate a lot of young white hipsters. They're going to motivate high African-American turnout, but it's not going to be enough to overcome the DNA in these still reddish states. And I don't see that changing in 2022 or in 2020. Raphael Warnock is not a Sanford Bishop. He is probably on policy issues to the left of Stacey Abrams. And so I don't see him being the type of candidate that is going to convince those suburban Biden voters who couldn't stomach Trump but didn't care about the Senate races to come out and vote for Warnock. I'm also not buying the argument that John Ossoff, who lost a special election for a House race, that he outspent his opponent, you know, 11 billion to one in 2018, is really going to beat David Perdue, um, who has a powerful political name in the state and who has won elections in the past, right? So I'm not buying the toss-up rating here. The other narrative is that Republicans have these things in the bag and it's guaranteed. I'm not buying that either, simply because special elections are weird. Special elections are their own animal. And, you know, you run unopposed or you run scared. You run like you might lose at all times. And so I do expect David Perdue to win comfortably. I do expect Kelly Leffler to win by a less overwhelming margin, but I do expect her to win. I don't also believe that everybody who comes out to vote for one is going to necessarily vote for the other. And I think that ultimately, I, I would be surprised if the race is split, but I do think there's a possibility that they do split. 
I think that, you know, there's a possibility that Purdue's advantage of incumbency gives him a little bit of a leg up. There's a possibility that Warnock voters are not really motivated to vote for Ossoff. There's a possibility that some some voters who are willing to vote for Ossoff are not willing to vote for Warnock. So I don't see those coalitions as as uniform. I think that that my prediction would be that Purdue voters are probably going to vote for Leffler. Leffler voters are going to probably vote for Purdue. Okay, Republicans that are motivated to come out for this are probably going to vote for both. I, I do think, though, that you're going to see a certain amount of undervote in the Democratic races because, you know, Sean Trendy, who's a very smart guy, I respect his, his electoral analysis. You know, he says that the Democrats' coalitions are beautifully complementary here. Okay, I think that you're making the assumption there that... African-American voters who, who like Warnock because he preaches at Ebenezer Baptist Church because he's got that connection, because he's got roots in the community, are then going to vote for, you know, a 30-something white hipster dude against David Perdue. I'm not saying they're going to vote for Perdue, but I am saying, you know, voters are smart enough to realize that, that you don't necessarily have to take a package deal. I also wonder if some of the suburbanites that like Ossoff are going to be turned off by some of Warnock's rhetoric, which is a little bit intense sometimes. His rhetoric about Israel, uh, some of the things that he's he's said on trips to Israel in the past, you know, comparing the security fence in Israel to the Berlin Wall. Anytime that you're comparing Israel to East Germany, you're probably walking down an interesting road that I, I, I wouldn't walk down. I, first of all, I think any comparisons are not necessarily great. You know, I, I, I think Israel is sui generis enough that I wouldn't be comparing it to anybody. I certainly wouldn't be comparing it to South Africa or to East Germany in quite the way that Warnock did in the past. I think there are significant differences. And I think in particular, the apartheid comparison is to Israel is invidious, given the fact that you have actually seen increased Arab-Israeli participation in mainstream Israeli politics. You have seen mainstream Israeli parties actually cultivating their own Arab-Israeli population. Now, if you want to talk about the West Bank, that's a different uh, scenario, obviously, because they don't have the vote in Israeli elections. But Arab-Israeli political participation is not, I would say, reflective of any pattern that you would have seen in apartheid South Africa. And I do think that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the Israel stuff for now, but I think there are some significant differences in the way the opposition movements have conducted themselves, the, the Palestinian opposition movement, vice the, the ANC, for example. So I, I think that the comparisons are invidious. I also think, politically speaking, they're unwise. There are a lot of pro-Israel voters in Georgia. There are probably a lot of pro-Israel voters in Georgia who pulled the, the lever for Biden. Um, and so that's damaging, I would, I would say, for Warnock. Not so sure about all of his other comments. I think also his description of himself as a pro-choice pastor is going to get a lot of play in more pro-life parts of the state. And so there's going to be a lot of people who are concerned about Warnock. So, you know, I, here's what I'm trying to say about this. I think Republicans have a, a, a statistically significant but not insurmountable advantage. I would put these two races in the leans Republican category. You know, the, the different crystal ball folks put things in the toss-up, leans toward one party, likely toward other parties, safe toward other. So I reject the toss-up narrative, but I'm also going to reject the likely narrative. I'm going to put these at firmly leans Republican, which means that I would say the most likely outcome of these races is that they go toward the Republicans. However, I would not be completely surprised if one or both of them flips to the Democrats. Now, if you're the Republicans, the worst case scenario is Democrats take both. If you are the Democrats, actually the worst case scenario is that Warnock wins and Ossoff loses. Here's why. Because if Purdue wins and Leffler loses, then Democrats have 
still not got the Senate. It's still 51-49 Republican. But then you also have to defend the Warnock seat in two years. Warnock and Leffler are candidates that I think are going to have trouble in 2020. Either one of them, is, if they're the nominee, is going to be the top target of the other side. So if you're the Democrats, actually the worst case scenario for you is that Purdue wins, so you don't get the Senate, but that Warnock also wins, and then you have to defend him in two years against probably a very strong Republican nominee. I do not think that, you know, with, with the number of Republican office holders in the state, I think the likelihood that you don't get a really strong nominee for that Senate seat in 2022 is very slim. And so, you know, that's actually, to, to my way of thinking, the worst case scenario, if you're the Democrats, is not that you lose both, because you'll get another shot at Leffler in 2022. And if you're going to not have the Senate, it's better to be able to attack an incumbent that has seen this sort of, you know, more vulnerable, rather than to have to defend that incumbent, because that prevents you from being able to go on the offensive in, in other places. And I think Warnock is going to be, if he somehow pulls it off, is going to be very difficult to defend. Now, that being said, I do think that Purdue winning and, and Warnock also winning is a possible but unlikely scenario. I think the most likely scenario is, in fact, that they track both. But my read on things is actually the worst case scenario for Democrats is that you have 51 to 49, but then you also have to defend you know, everything Senator Warnock says or does or every vote that he takes against a probably pretty strong Republican challenge in 2022. So uh, that's the first event. Now, here, going back to the Biden administration, and by the way, that was going to be a full podcast, but I feel like we've, we've covered it now, so we need to do a separate podcast, at least until those results come out. From the perspective of the Biden administration, I'm not sure that it matters as much as it does to Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats. The reason being that functionally, anything the Biden administration wants to pass as a priority through the Senate has to go through Joe Manchin anyway. And Joe Manchin is a fairly conservative Democrat by Democratic standards. What I mean by that is Joe Manchin is likely not going to want to be the 50th vote for any Biden initiative that might torpedo his uh, brand in West Virginia. Okay. If you're looking at non-executive climate action, you can forget about it. West Virginia is a cold state. If you're looking for major progressive wish list stuff coming out of the Biden administration, you can forget about it. West Virginia is a conservative state. And Joe Biden is not, or uh, Joe Manchin is not going to kill his political brand so, so that something can get passed along those lines. The other thing is, anything coming out of the House is also going to have to be, be modest because Pelosi's got a lot of vulnerable Dems who don't want to be that 218th vote for, you know, whatever the squad dreams up. So if, if you're looking at this as like, this is going to be a bonanza for progressives, it doesn't matter what happens on the runoffs, that's not going to happen. Now, obviously, if you're a Republican, it's better if you have those two Senate seats. The best case scenario for Republicans is that you have both Senate seats. And yeah, I know what I just said about the Democrats, you know, not having the, the Senate, you know, but having to defend. If you're a Republican, the, the difference with Leffler versus Warnock is Leffler's probably not going to cost you a lot of money to defend. Leffler's, part of the reason she got the appointment from Kemp in the first place is that she's got enough money that she can self-fund. So she's not likely to cost a huge amount of money to defend. So, so best case scenario, if you're a Republican, you still want both of those Senate seats. Because what that basically means is that instead of negotiating with Joe Manchin, Biden negotiates with Mitch McConnell. Okay, and that's a much stronger position for Republicans to be in. It basically means that Mitch McConnell 
gets to set priorities um, because nothing that goes through him or nothing that, that he doesn't want is going to get passed. Now, Biden and Mitch McConnell do have a relationship that goes back a while. They've known each other for the, in the Senate. They've worked together. They can work together again in the future. So it doesn't mean that nothing gets passed. What it means is that nothing gets passed without Republican input. And I think that's probably also true in the House because McConnell can also reach back to Kevin McCarthy and saying and say, hey, look, you know, here's this COVID package. This is what the Biden administration and the Senate negotiators agree with. And, you know, it'd be good to make this actually something that's sort of bipartisan, right? So Pelosi's whole trick of trying to freeze out the Senate Republicans uh, and to sort of, you know, take maximalist positions is not going to work because I don't think the Biden administration is going to put up with that because they want a COVID, COVID stimulus. Okay. So pivoting to Biden, Biden gets inaugurated. The first thing he has to do immediately is a COVID stimulus. All right. We're already seeing case numbers rise here in Virginia Beach. I just got notification this morning that the public library is closed due to threats of, of you know, rising cases from COVID. Okay. I don't know that we're headed for full lockdown like we saw in April or May. You may know more about that by the time you're hearing this than I do. I don't expect that, but I do think that we're headed for something that's going to hurt businesses, particularly businesses like retailers, right at the time when they would normally count on a season like this to put them back in the black. And I think, you know, it, you're going to be looking at closures, layoffs, all that kind of stuff right around Christmas time, right around the first of the year. That's ugly. That's very ugly. The timing on this is bad. And so if you're coming in as a Biden administration, the first thing you want to do is, is come up with a package of COVID stimulus that's going to satisfy everybody that you can get passed quickly because this has to be done quickly. And that means probably assuming the runoffs go the way we think they're going to go, the way I think they're going to go, which is the most likely outcome is narrow wins for Republicans in both races. Then Biden needs to sit down with McConnell the day after and say, okay, what are we doing here for the stimulus? Let's make this happen. What do you want? Here's what I want. You get Janet Yellen, the new uh, treasury uh, secretary designee in there. And you start negotiating from day one because that needs to be the first thing that happens. And I would be shocked if from the Biden perspective, that's not the first thing you want to have happen. Same thing goes for Mitch McConnell. You know, I think McConnell is probably going to recognize the expediency of this. And he's going to have demands. He's going to have demands for, for spending accountability. He's going to have demands for uh, support for small business. He's going to have demands for a certain amount of fiscal responsibility on this because now that the Republicans don't have the White House, they're going to start caring about that again, probably sometime in the next couple of months, which is probably a good thing. It would be good if they cared about it more when they have the White House as well. But, you know, it is what it is. I think Biden's probably going to meet a fair number of them. These are two guys who have known how to compromise in the past. They compromised on the sequestration issue, the fiscal cliff negotiations. I want to say it was 2014. They've done this before. They can do it again. And McConnell has demonstrated that he's got pretty, pretty solid control of his caucus. And worst comes to worst, you know, there are a couple of Democratic senators. I'm thinking of Joe Manchin. I'm thinking of Mark Kelly, who just got elected to a two-year term in, in Arizona that he's going to have to defend in 2022, who are probably going to be willing. I'm also thinking of Kristen Sinema, who is also from Arizona. And Arizona is a little bit more in that fiscally conservative line in terms of, of uh, senators. So she's trying to act like a blue dog, at least for a while. These are some people who could cross the aisle to support a package that McConnell is putting forward. So I think probably you're going to see a Biden-McConnell stimulus bill fairly early in the spring. Now, if it's not, in fact, uh, if Democrats do, in fact, take the Senate, then we're looking at things very different. Then I think you could be looking at 
sort of a Schumer-Pelosi larger stimulus bill that gets rammed through on a party line vote, where there's an immense amount of pressure on, on Joe Manchin to vote for it. That's one of the easier issues to pressure Manchin on, because while West Virginia is a conservative state, it is a coal state. It's also a state that benefits and has benefited in the, extensively in the past from federal funding. And so I do think that if the Democrats are able to take the two Senate runoffs, they're probably going to get most of what they want in a stimulus bill. We may be talking about the difference between a $1.5 trillion to $2 trillion package negotiated by Biden and McConnell and a $3 trillion package negotiated exclusively by Democrats with Democrats and shoved through on a party line vote. Pelosi's got the votes to do it. And if the runoffs go the way they could go, I think Schumer's going to have the votes to do it with Kamala voting you know, for, for Democrats as well. And I think that's going to happen pretty quickly. Okay, so if you're looking at what's the political impact of the run runoffs, that's the difference. It's the difference between a much larger COVID stimulus that's going to be essentially a wish fulfillment exercise for Democrats or something that's negotiated between Democrats and Republicans that's got some Democratic ideas, some Republican ideas, and is a compromise that's, that's broadly bipartisan. That's going to make people on, on either edge of the political spectrum more upset, but that will be more broadly popular. So that's, that's the first thing. COVID is going to be the biggest challenge for the Biden administration for the first four to six months, depending on the efficacy of the vaccines, how quickly they are distributed, and whether the FDA moves slowly or quickly with distribution. And also, at what point we have either some sort of herd immunity through vaccination or vaccination of a significant number, significant enough number of high-risk people that some of the mandates are going to ease. Okay, so we're probably looking at somewhere between April and June, large-scale widespread vaccination if all goes well. What that means is COVID is the dominant issue for the first six months of the Biden administration. And if Biden is smart, and I think this is also his instinct, he is going to try to work with Republicans on it and come up with sort of a bipartisan approach because that you know set, sets early the tone for him as sort of a bipartisan compromise who can get stuff done. Okay. The other issues that Biden is going to have to deal with in the, the first term, I don't think he's going to run for a second term, but that's a podcast we can do in a couple of years are the debt in China. There's going to be an intense demand for accountability after COVID. Um, it's not going to be enough to say a noun, a verb, and Donald Trump um, to steal a line from Joe Biden. One of Joe Biden's best political lines was in 2008 when he said every Rudy Giuliani speech is a noun, a verb, in 9-11. And it's going to be very difficult for Biden to essentially say with COVID, a noun, a verb, and, and Donald Trump. People's memories aren't that long, and uh, Donald Trump's going to be gone. I don't think people are really prepared for that mentally, because our politics have been so dominated by Trump over the past four years, and there's no way that once he's out of office, his imprint doesn't shrink, both within the Republican Party and in politics generally. Yeah, he's still going to tweet. Yeah, you're still going to have media that, like hamsters that have been trained to the sound of a bell or, or um, pellets dropping the food bowl to go see what's in the Trump Twitter food bowl and, you know, distribute it all over the place. Yep, that's totally going to happen. But there's going to be diminishing returns because people are just not going to be that interested in it once he's gone. The, the level of interest, the level of clickbait that you're going to be able to get from that is going to have diminishing returns. 
from both sides, I would say. And so you're going to see the slow fade of Trump, but that still is there still is going to be a serious demand for accountability because some things went wrong. And COVID was a virus that was sort of, you know, viruses aren't necessarily man-made, but questions in the aftermath will be raised. And questions particularly with respect to China will be raised. And not just on the right. Certainly it will be something that conservatives are asking about. But you're also going to have people on the left who are going to start raising questions about American corporations' complicity with what's happening in China and how international corporations have benefited from things that may have led to the coronavirus in terms of China, right? Because the left is not pro-corporate. They're not naturally, they're not the party of sort of pro-free trade, pro-business, pro-corporate stuff. And, and China has really relied on its relationships with American corporations. So there's a lot to dislike about China on the left as well. You know, add to that the, the Uyghurs. Add to that the fact that China censors every movie that comes in to eliminate any gay characters, right? Pretty much everybody can find reasons why the Chinese government makes them mad. It's not going to be hard. So I think China is definitely in for some tighter scrutiny from the U.S. And certainly if Republicans keep the Senate, there's going to be Senate investigations that are focused on China. If Republicans are smart, they will focus on China and not the not try to replicate the strategy that the the Democrats just did with Trump, with Biden. You know, investigate, investigate, investigate the Biden administration. I, I don't think that gets you as much leverage as actually investigating, investigating, investigating China. Possibly also big tech. I expect that to happen, as I discussed in a previous podcast. Okay, so what are Biden's foreign policy instincts going to be like? Well, we can see some of his foreign policy team already. Guys like Tony Blinken, who is his... De designee for Secretary of State. By the way, I can't hear the name Tony Blinken without thinking Robin Hood Men in Tights because they have a blind character named, named Blinken in that. And it's just it, it's just a, a mental tick in my head. But <laughs> Tony, Tony Blinken, Patrick Sullivan, and Alejandro Mayorkas for Secretary of DHS. Uh, the DNI, whose name... Uh, oh, Avril Haines. Yep. Haines, Blinken, and Sullivan all have something in common. They all worked for Joe Biden. Every single one of them was a foreign policy advisor to Biden in the past. And what this tells you is that Biden is going to be his own foreign policy person. He is not bringing in a diversity of foreign policy perspectives the way previous administrations have done. Look at Trump, okay? You had Rex Tillerson, who was a, a corporate guy. You had James Madison, Mattis, who was a military guy. You had several national security advisors with sort of a military background. Those are not people who are necessarily, you know, former Trump employees, right? He's bringing non-government, so people who are not necessarily old government hands, um, but people who have sort of a either a business or a military background, right? So that's Trump's initial team. And obviously Trump goes through secretaries of state. He, he goes to uh, Pompeo. But he went through national security advisors at a rapid rate. He went through defense secretaries at a somewhat less rapid rate, but, but still somewhat alarming rate. And, you know, but none of, you know, and, and increasingly started moving toward acting folks. So Trump was, was bringing in a team with those types of experiences. And he wanted people, I think he wanted people who were going to make him look good. Obama brought in people from different factions of the Democratic Party or people who might be sort of sympathetic to Democratic foreign policy perspectives. And he always had a couple of holdovers from the Republican Party in his cabinet. Right? So he had some more progressive-oriented Democrats, he had some more establishment Democrats, and he had a couple of Republicans in his national security cabinet. 
Okay, so you had Hillary Clinton as his first Secretary of State, Bob Gates, a holdover from the second Bush administration, SecDef, Leon Panetta, who is a, a, a the establishment Democrats, establishment Democrat as, as CIA director. And, you know, then you had kind of later on John, uh, Chuck Hagel, Republican, but more in step with Democrats on foreign policy issues as Secretary of State. And, uh, you know, Secretary of Defense was, was more sort of an establishment Democratic position. I think it was Panetta for a while and then uh, Ashton Carter. Was, was the final one. And then, of course, John Kerry, uh, who's from the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party in terms of foreign policy. Okay, so, so with Obama, you see a diversity of different perspectives in different roles. And he kind of, I think he was the ultimate decision maker, but he had a very slow, very deliberative process of foreign policy that was focused on bringing in a lot of different perspectives and then eventually driving toward a decision with him as the decider. But but a very slow decision process. Okay. And that is very different style than Trump, but it's also a very different style than I think we're going to get from, from Obama or from, from Biden. Obama's style is different from Biden. Bush actually, ironically enough, Bush's cabinet probably looked the most like Obama's, more like Obama's than like Trump's. He had Colin Powell, Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, all from different factions of the Republican Party establishment. Okay. Bush also relied, I think, more on his national security advisor than some than the other two subsequent presidents did. So there's different styles of leadership there. The team of rival style of bringing sort of rival folks from from within the party into your foreign policy cabinet is the most common. Biden's not doing that. Biden is bringing in nominees whose primary loyalty and allegiance is to Joe Biden. These are people who are going to implement the Biden doctrine and who owe their positions largely to their ties to Biden. Okay, this is not an attempt to reach out to the different factions of the Democratic Party. Okay, and you, you, it's kind of funny because it's a, it was a throwaway line in the debate where Donald Trump was attacking Biden on the sort of the progressive left elements of the Democratic Party and trying to tie them to him. And Joe Biden said, I am the Democratic Party. And he certainly is acting that way in terms of his appointments. He's not bringing in a diversity of perspectives. He's not trying to appeal to or placate, you know, the progressives or the establishment or anything like that. He's bringing his people in to implement his policy. All right. This is going to be a very consistent, very Biden-centric foreign policy team. And he's going to kind of be his own driver of foreign policy. I don't expect there to be a lot of dissent. I also don't expect there to be a lot of leaks from the Biden uh, team because they're going to be singing from the same sheet of music and Biden's the composer. Okay. So if you want a good sense of what the Biden administration's foreign policy is going to look like, what are Biden's foreign policy instincts? I think his foreign policy instincts are a little bit inconsistent, but they tend to be like his instincts on domestic policy and like his instincts in general. He's a deal maker. He sees himself as somebody who can sit down across the table from anybody and kind of work out a deal. He was a big booster of the Iran deal. Uh, his, his Middle East foreign policy instincts are actually pretty atrocious, but they are not as bad as some elements of the Democratic Party. Uh, so Biden consistently makes the wrong decision on the Middle East, but in terms of, of not being a radical, he makes the wrong decision within acceptable parameters. You know, He's not going to be somebody who's going to be leading an anti-Israel crusade or anything like that in the region. He's not going to be somebody who's trying to completely overturn the apple cart. He is somebody who's going to sometimes have poor judgment. Uh, and so your concern is if he's got all these yes men around him, all these people who essentially owe their, their 
their lives and their futures and their careers to Biden? Are they going to actually, you know, critique him? The positive of that is that these are people who are probably expert in managing Biden. And every president to a certain extent needs to be managed. Obama once said that he thought he was his own best chief of staff. That is false. I don't care how good you are. You are not your own best chief of staff. You need to let people manage you. And these people are probably experts in managing Biden. Okay, so that's what we're looking at in foreign policy. What's the implication for China? I think they're going to be flexible. I think that there's a, a bit of a pro-China tilt toward Biden, given some of his past advocacy and statements. But I think Biden's also smart enough to read the room. Okay, Biden wants to be in the center of the consensus. And if the consensus on China is we need to back away, Biden's going to back away. There's nothing in his past, I think, that would prevent that. And so that's going to be somewhat determinative there. Okay, the final issue that's going to dominate, I would say, uh, the first term, and maybe this won't be an issue in the first year, is the debt. We've already spent a couple trillion that we didn't have on, the, on COVID. We're probably going to spend a couple trillion more that we don't necessarily have. Biden's probably going to do something to forgive student loans as well. All that money's got to come from somewhere. And we were already looking at entitlements being an issue sometime within the next five or six years. All of this spending could push certain fiscal realities about our debt to GDP ratio even closer. Anyway, I think that is, is an issue that Biden's going to have to deal with. It's very difficult to figure out exactly how you deal with that debt to GDP issue. It's very difficult to think about, do you want to be the president who is responsible for proposing both spending cuts and tax increases? Because if in fact there is a need to um, you know, get the fiscal house in order, it's going to require both. It's going to require cutting spending. It's going to require raising taxes. The two things voters hate the most in the world are cutting tax cutting spending, and raising taxes. Voters always want their taxes cut and their spending raised, right? It's, it's human nature. We want stuff for free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, though. And you can only push off the payment on it for so long. So Biden's in a very real possibility of having to deal with that at some point in his administration. How are you going to face that reality? I think for Biden, it becomes very important to look at whether that happens before or after the midterm. Because, you know, if he's dealing with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, that's a very, very different, you know, picture. Because then he can try to make Republicans also share the blame for what needs to be done. And so, you know, I don't, I don't really know how that's going to play out, but it's definitely an issue that we're watching from that perspective. Other issues that I expect the Biden administration to be involved with in the first year. Number one, repealing all of Trump's executive orders, even the ones that they shouldn't. Every administration repeals all the executive orders that came before. The Biden administration will probably be no exception. Number two, they appointed John Kerry to be climate czar. So they're probably going to do something big climate related, maybe taking the U.S. back in the completely non-binding Paris climate accords. If that's all that happens, I'll be surprised. I imagine there'll probably be some sort of executive action of some sort with some focus on, you know, if not the Green New Deal, then at least something that's climate related. They're probably going to try to do something. I mean, one of the priorities that the transition has tagged is systemic racism. So they're probably going to try to, I don't know, do something about that. Almost certainly reinstituting the federal training mandates that Trump removed for critical theory and, and uh, anti-racism training and all that sort of stuff. We'll have a podcast coming out on that soon. I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of the critical theory. I'm not skeptical of the claims that there are systemic racism. I'm skeptical that 
this new move toward a critical theory approach or an intersectional approach is actually going to have any meaningful positive impact on it. But we're probably going to get a chance to find out. On abortion policy, it's it's going to be, I, I, I think Biden's probably going to fulfill that campaign promise of certainly removing the Mexico City policy and reinstituting a lot of the funding for abortion that has been removed by things like the Hyde Amendment. By the way, good luck getting repealing the Hyde Amendment passed through the House and the Senate right now. So that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but weakening some of it, certainly. Now, here's the challenge. Joe Biden is actually Catholic, as far as we know. It doesn't seem to have stopped him before <laughs> from, from being as pro-choice as he needed to be to move up in the Democratic Party. It's a lot different when you're the most prominent Catholic politician in the world. Okay? It's a lot different for Joe Biden. It's a lot different for the Catholic Church. It's a lot different for the Catholic Church when you have a president of the United States who is a Catholic who is pushing policies on abortion that are directly contradictory to Catholic teaching. And I, I, I have not heard anybody really say, oh, this is going to be a big thing that's going to come up. The assumption is just, oh, the Catholic Church isn't going to do anything. Pope Francis isn't going to do anything. Catholics aren't going to do anything. This is a different situation. This is a different situation. This is not John F. Kennedy. Roe versus Wade had not been passed when JFK was president. This will be the first time a Catholic has been president in the United States since Roe v. Wade was passed. So we are going to see something happen. And if there's not substantive action taken by the Roman Catholic Church in response to this, there's going to be a pushback from Catholics. Okay, that's a dynamic to watch. It's not a dynamic a lot of people are talking about. It's going to have an impact. Because... What Biden does doesn't just affect things in the United States, it affects things around the world. And so Pope Francis is in an interesting place because he always wants to be kind of, he kind of wants to play to the left. His tendency, his temptation is to sort of play to the left a little bit and to focus on issues where there's common ground with the left. I don't necessarily think it's because he's a communist or anything like that. It's just he's more comfortable in that space. You know, his DNA is is sort of more in the Latin American uh, okay-ish with, with more government intervention type populist mindset. Okay, but now he's got an American president who's going to be a Catholic, who's going to be pushing an ab abortion policy both at home and abroad because the Mexico City policy affects U.S. foreign aid. Okay, that's a big deal in a lot of developing countries. That's potentially a big deal in the Philippines, where one of Pope Francis's closest allies is a cardinal. It's a big deal in Latin America. It's a big deal in Africa. It's a big deal in a lot of these places where the Roman Catholic Church is growing. And so I'm not necessarily just assuming that it's going to be a smooth ride of smooth sailing for the Catholic Church not doing anything to engage with or discipline or sort of try to constructively move the mindset of the world's most Catholic, uh, prominent Catholic politician, the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Okay, it's different when the pro-choice Democrat is a Catholic. And so that's a dynamic that I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, this might be the dog that doesn't bark, but, but if it is, then you're going to have some serious pushback, I would say, from Catholics, both in the United States and abroad, about why is a Catholic president funding abortions in the developing world? Why is a Catholic president funding things that are undermining Catholic social teaching in Catholic majority countries? Why are the appointees of this Catholic president pushing for 
things that are kind of anti-Catholic in large portions of the developing world, which is going to happen when Democratic appointees get put in positions to handle U.S. foreign aid. It's an under-the-radar the issue, but it's an issue that's going to be a little bit more salient, I think, than people realize. Particularly if, uh, I know this is sort of morbid, you know, Pope Francis is not the youngest pope right now. So if we have a new papal conclave while Biden is president, what are the implications of that? And is there a push for someone who is going to maybe take a stronger line with respect to some of these issues? So that's something to watch. That is something to watch very closely in the upcoming presidential term. And how's Biden going to respond? We don't know. Nobody's been in this position before. So that's actually a new thing. Uh, and it's a new thing that bears watching. So year one of the, uh, of the Biden administration. Last comment on this, and this is kind of what I started the podcast with. Compared to the last four years, I think 2021 politically could be pretty boring. Something could happen. You know, the Pope could ex if the Pope excommunicates Biden for the Mexico City policy, that's, that's not boring. I don't actually expect that to happen. I, I expect that whatever happens is going to be a little bit more like low-key. But Biden is just not Trump. He's not Trump and he's not Obama. He's not a celebrity-oriented president. He's not going to be eating up all the oxygen in the room the way Trump and Obama did. It's just not his style. He's more of a, a low-key, back-slapping, you know, work-the-room type of politician. And so he's just, he's not going to be the center of attention the way the president has been for the past 12 years. And yes, I said 12 years, because Obama was a celebrity. And then Trump took it to an even higher level. And Biden's just not going to do that. It's not his style. It's not who he is. It's not the way he's going to run the country. He doesn't have it in him. And what does that mean? Probably it means that politics is a lot less entertainment focused, which is not the worst thing in the world, if that, if that ends up being uh, the way we go on this. But it could also mean that you're going to see some of the lesser lights really step up and try to fill that politics celebrity infotainment spotlight on both sides. And, and given that we've got some uh, Marjorie Green and Ilhan Omar and, you know, AOC and, and Louis Gohmert types in, in the house, that might not always be the best thing in the world. Because sometimes the entertainer-oriented politicians are a little bit kooky. Even compared to, to some of the presidents. So, like, you know, I don't know. But I suspect that even if those people are really trying, they're just not the same kind of suck the oxygen out of the, the room presence that the president is. So we could be actually looking at politics that's a little bit more boring. I know I just listed a lot of stuff that's going to happen. All of this is very interesting to me. It's very interesting to my listeners who are, are politics junkies. But for the average person who is maybe not as interested in the day-to-day -day minutia of politics, this could be boring. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Because I think part of living in a free society is, is the right to not pay attention to politics if you don't want to. There's something, you know, the requirement to pay attention to politics at all times as a means of survival is something that only happens in countries that we don't want to live in. So I think it's not a bad thing if we have a little bit of a backing off from the constant celebra celebritization of politics. And if there's one thing I'm actually looking forward to from a Biden administration, it's Biden being a little bit more boring, a little bit less the center of attention. 
and to have people actually like go back to using social media for cat videos and stuff instead of constant, constant, constant churn of political memes. So we can hope for that. I'm probably going to be disappointed in that, aren't I? Oh, well. Anyway, that's a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. You can also follow us on the RSG feeds, the Facebook and Instagram feeds as described at the beginning of this episode. Please remember to tell your friends, tell your family members, tell your Facebook acquaintances who are interested in politics. Tell that person who won't stop retweeting politics memes that if you want to not just be a meme tweeter, but actually know things, you should subscribe to Blind Politics. And we will be back to cover all of the events of the days to come. We'll probably do a couple of retrospectives. We may do some year-end award stuff. We'll see, but it's going to be fun. Whatever it is, it will be a blast. So stick with us as we move ahead with what's going on in the world of politics. And so for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <music>